This is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. On the line, we have Grover Norquest, who advocates, you've heard him, you've read him in the paper. Uh, He is president of Americans for Tax Reform, uh, advocating for lower taxes. Grover, welcome to Cats at Night. Absolutely. Good to be with you. Thank you. So big in the news the past couple of days is President uh, is, you know, we've got a narrow GOP majority uh, eager in Congress to cut the budget. How do they get that done? Well, we have an example 10 years ago when uh, Biden was vice president. He helped negotiate it uh, and Obama was president. What the Republicans said was to Obama, okay. You want $2.4 trillion in higher debt ceiling, $2.4 trillion. It's a lot of money. We'll give that to you, okay? But we need it in the same bill, $2.4 trillion in reduced spending over a 10-year period, down from what you had planned to spend. Uh, and the Democrats said, oh, you should never hold the government hostage uh, with the debt ceiling. Of course, half of the time the debt ceiling is raised, uh, there are things attached to it as a condition of signing it. That's so not rare at all. Uh, oh, and, and uh, the world will think we're falling apart if we go to the last minute before we do this. Actually, we often go to the last minute. We've gone to the last minute when the Democrats have the House and the Senate and the presidency, and it's still gone to the last minute. And people know that it will get done at the end. Um, uh, so they just oh, – oh, and by the way, we have to raise taxes. Oh, you want to reduce the deficit? No, not the deficit. We want to reduce spending. Reducing spending reduces the deficit. Raising taxes just gives the government more money for them to spend and doesn't at the end of the day actually ever reduce the deficit. Makes it get bigger because the Democrats go, oh, wow, we can, we can spend more because they just gave us more. So the Republicans said no tax increase, period, none, none, none. And almost all the Republicans in the House and Senate then – and now have signed the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, and they said never raising taxes, not happening. Mm. So Grover, said, oh, Ed, yeah. Grover, Ed, Ed Cox, so Biden's yeah, saying hey, he's not going to negotiate, right, at all. Is that the normal? Uh, yep, they said that before. Yep. They said that before. Uh, it's nonsense. And what I think the Republicans ought to do is pass a bill that does exactly that uh, and send it over to the Senate. Uh, we did get from the Democratic Senate under Obama, uh, but a Republican House. We got a bill. Look, it's not as much as you'd want. One of the uh, conservative Republicans, the Freedom Caucus, said we want four times as much spending cuts as the increase of the debt ceiling. I want it too, but uh, elect a president if you think you can do that. Elect a Senate. But if you forget to elect a president and you forget to elect a Senate, getting one for one was a pretty good deal last time. The Democrats were just as strong. But if we ask for that, it's a little hard for the Democrats to go, this has never been done before. Actually, it was done 10 years ago. This will destroy the country. Actually, it was just fine. Uh, all the things that they claim will happen, we know didn't happen. So it's a pretty easy thing to argue for. Uh, and as long as we say to ourselves, this is not our last thing we want. This is not the last budget restraint that we're ever going to see. This is the beginning of a process. But let's not give them money for free without, a rest- without some restraint. In law. Now, you're comparing this to 2011. Is that right? The budget. Yes. And, and we had won 63 seats in 2010 and had a very large majority. Is the fact that the Republicans only have a small majority, does that make a difference in the negotiating process? As long as we can hold 208, 218, it doesn't matter what that is. Um, 
Now, it was made difficult when five people decided we would want to decide who's the speaker. So they have given the Democrats a false idea that there's disunity on the Republican side. There is on who should be speaker, or there was. I mean, it was 90-10 in agreement to go with one guy. Uh, but in terms of spending less, I think you, everybody from moderates to conservatives to in between uh, wants less spending and more restraint. You can, you can hold that group together. Grover, let me ask you, you know, it feels like we play, we watch this game of chicken in Washington all the time and the sky never falls. Do regular people need to actually care about this? We should care in the sense that if you send, if you elect a congressman, you vote for congressman or senator, understand they're going to go to D.C. with one of two positions. If you elect a Republican, he says, I will solve whatever problems comes along without raising taxes. Mm. If you elect a Democrat, you'll say, I will see any problem as an opportunity to raise taxes and spending and increase, increase control over your life. Choose which way you want to go. Vote. And you don't have to micromanage these people. You have a life to lead to. Um, but lot, in, in a world with two parties heading in a different direction, lobbying isn't important. Elections are. But you could argue that Republicans have increased this number as well as Democrats under Republican leadership. This has happened as well. And there, there are two parts to that. One is because you have these this mandated spending, these entitlements, unless you have 60 votes in the Senate, spending goes wildly up every year, whether it's Republican president, House or Senate. If you don't have 60 votes in the Senate, you couldn't even begin to think about reforming entitlement. So hmm. part of it is we're on automatic pilot to spend too much. Hmm. And you need 60 votes in the Senate, a majority in the House, including the people who are weak need because they're worried about their districts. And you got to get to it 18 and a president who's willing to, to do this. We had that and only lost by one vote uh, when Trump and the Republicans got together. Remember, McCain decided at the last moment not to block grant Medicaid and Obamacare out to the states and let 50 states decide how to spend that money and how to innovate. That would have been a huge step forward, would have saved a lot of money, would have brought the cost curve down. We lost by one vote, and that was McCain because he was just being mad at Trump. <laughs> Grover, it's a, Judge Richard Weinberg, it seems to uh, me yeah. as, as, a, as a layperson who's not an economist or, or a tax person, you have a lot of theater going on every time the debt ceiling issue comes up. You have the Democrats, and I'm, I'm a Democrat, keep yelling, well, the Republicans are going to cut Medicare, they're going to cut Social Security. We can't, we can't negotiate on this, this debt ceiling. There are no cuts. Uh, they're going to throw grandma off the cliff. What do, you, what do you say about those kinds of theatrics and that kind of politics? Well, it's particularly odd because in the last time we did this, 2011, then again in 2013, it was Obama who wanted to bring Social Security and Medicare into the deal. He wanted not a $2 trillion deal, but a $4 trillion deal. One would be a trillion dollars less in Social Security and Medicare out into the future and a trillion dollars in higher taxes. Uh, that would have been a disaster for the Republicans because one as soon as the Republicans said yes to touching Social Security and Medicare, I'll bet you a nickel that uh, Obama would have stepped back <laughs> and said their project uh, and to have agreed to a trillion dollars in taxes would have ended the modern Republican Party's reason for existence. Uh, you cannot raise taxes and walk away from it as a Republican. That's exactly the lesson we learned from George Herbert Walker Bush, who had a very mm -hmm. successful presidency. Soviet Union fell apart, kicked Iraq out of 
Kuwait without sticking around for 25 years. And except for one thing, he raised taxes. Republicans will not tolerate that from a Republican president. So um, the, the idea of having Social Security involved was a Democrat initiative last time around and will be again because they like to talk about it, but claim that the Republicans want to do it. Um, like that discussion about uh, gas stoves that Democrats said we're going to take them away and the Republicans said, please don't. And they said, oh, those Republicans are crazy about gas stoves. So, Grover, this is David Patterson. First of all, I think you're absolutely right about the leadership battle making some people think that there was no unity in the party. They've had leadership battles for three months in Congress before. But my question is, just from a negotiating point of view, why did you want to curb the spending over the next 10 years, which you really can't control, and uh, create a greater cut in spending in the first few years? Um, Well, because you want to do something that's not so disruptive that people don't know how to adapt to it. You can cut spending over time if you give people options, if you block grant things to the states and let states take 50 different approaches. When Clinton, his president, block granted uh, traditional welfare, aid to families with dependent children, then called TANF, uh, he block granted that to the states. The average state was able to do that, saving 30%. And that gives you a lot of flexibility. So it 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 was less money that was needed and people got things done, but you've, you've really got to give people options on how to do it. You've got to remove some of the, you know, you have to do it this way, this way, and this way uh, in order to get, get it done. So I, I think I'm much more comfortable as long as you can have a governing thing that, that requires it. And that was the sequester. The sequester forced restraint, including on defense spending, including on defense spending. And the reason, one of the reasons people say that, that, uh, Obama agreed to it was he was quite certain the Republicans would panic when there had to be some restraint on defense, and they didn't. Thank you so much, Grover. Really appreciate you joining Cats at Night tonight. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to Cats at Night. On this Friday, we have with us Judge Richard Weinberg, Ed Cox. We have David Patterson, and I'm Laura Curran. On the phone, we have Larry Kudlow. You see him on Fox News. You hear him here on WABC. Um, Mr. Kudlow, I want to play this cut for you and get your reaction. So we have a rhetorical question. What in God's name would the Americans give up the progress we've made for the chaos they're suggesting? I don't get it. That's why the MAGA Republicans deliberately choose to inflict this kind of pain on the American people. Why? Why? This nation has gone through too much. We've come too far to let that happen. I will not let it happen. Not on my watch. I will veto everything they send us. Larry. Is he right? Is it unleashing chaos and catastrophe across our nation? Across our nation? Well, I don't really know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> nor, does, nor does he, Larry. Nor does he. 
I mean, uh, it's a very bizarre quote. You know, all week long, he's been out there accusing Republicans, House Republicans, of uh, destroying Social Security and destroying Medicare and defaulting on our government debt. And every one of those things is just a big lie. He keeps repeating it. I mean, I had Kevin McCarthy on the show, uh, House Speaker. I had number two guy, Steve Scalise, majority leader. And I asked them directly. I said, uh, are you going to destroy Social Security? Are you going to cut down Medicare? Are you going to default on the debt? And they both said, no, absolutely not. So Biden is using these sort of authoritarian tactics of a big lie just because Republicans would like to curtail spending and stop the debt from rising uh, any faster than it already has. I mean, Biden has spent $6 trillion. Look, the economy numbers came out this week, and for the year, you had 1% economic growth, and you had uh, 65 7% inflation, the highest in four decades. The 1% growth was the lowest since the financial meltdown. So I would say that he's touting a big triumph. And, you know, I think, I think the whole country wants to see a slowdown in federal spending and debt creation. And Biden doesn't even he doesn't even want to talk about it. All he does is lie about what the GOP is saying. So I think this is a kind of bizarre uh, tactic he's using, particularly because, let's face it, his opinion polls are sinking once again because of the classified documents uh, scandal that he's gotten himself involved with. So it's all a bunch of baloney. It's all a bunch of malarkey. Larry, Ed Cox here. We just had Grover Norquist on, and he was talking about 2011 when uh, same kind of thing. Uh, they're they're coming up to the debt ceiling, and uh, there actually was good negotiations, and the things got done, and the budget got cut because we had just won a big majority in the House of Representatives. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's right. Grover's correct. Look, you got, you know, like Kevin Hassett would like to see some kind of formulaic response like $3 of spending cuts for every dollar of debt increase. All right. I think in the John Boehner period that you mentioned, 2011, it was a one for one. But something like that is going to happen. That's what the House wants. You can't pass budgets unless the House passes the budget. And at some point, Biden's going to have to stop this big lie idea and just sit down and negotiate. The fact that he won't do it now, I, I think it's too bad. But again, I, I just really object to this old Democratic saw that, yo, you're going to break Social Security, you're going to break Medicare, you're going to default on the debt. It is not true. Leader. Well, what I happened think, to Larry? See, I you said we, something bad about the Democrats, and they kicked him right off the air. He's dropping some truth, air. and everyone... Uh... <laughs> Those Democrats really do censor, but not us. I'm telling you, not, not us. us, but uh, you know, there must be some Democrats in the control room that did this. Uh, <laughs> I, I know we're trying to get him back. We're trying to get him back. So, um, David Patterson, from your perch, what do you think of what he has to say so far? I was just surprised that he's that emphatic. In, you know, in other words, every once in a while, you really have to let it all hang out and, and be... Uh, you know, uh, appalled by something that your colleagues are doing, but that wasn't the case. It it it's almost repeating, as uh, Mr. Norquist said, what went on in in 2011. Biden was there at the time, uh, you know. So for him to react this way now is that this is something brand new. It 
it was. I thought it was kind of over the top. I thought the. Well, um, do you think it's a bit disingenuous and that it's really politics more than anything else? Well, the else? only like, shock, genuine shock? thing I think he said were four words. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> what say you to quote our uh, fearless leader, Judge? I think, uh, as I said, as I said to Mister Norquist, I think it's all political theater. I think it's false narratives. I think Mister Cudlow has it exactly right. It's about a blame game. It's pushing grandma off the cliff. Let's have serious conversations about about spending and taxes and regulation. All right. I, I, I Sorry we lost you, Larry. We got you back. Um, all, I, all I did was tell the truth, and you cut me off. <laughs> that's right. That's, you got to be careful. The truth, that truth. Much no, the truth you hear on WABC. We got your back. We got your back. Well, Larry, well, Larry, while you were gone, the, the operative uh, phrase, I thought, from what the president said was four words. I don't get it. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, uh, he will barely acknowledge that the GOP has taken the House and that the game has changed. But don't you think and that's think politics? That's, don't you think that's, you know, of course he's going to do that? Well, well, it's all politics. The yeah. question is, is it good politics or is it bad politics, stupid yeah. politics? And I don't think, uh, you know, he's in no position right now. I mean, there's a lot of people that feel that his own party is walking away from him on these classified documents, for example. I mean, there's a whole school of thought that says that the leaks on the, you know, they tried to hold the documents back. The White House and the Justice Department didn't want the public to know. It leaked out. There's a whole school of thought that says basically it was people inside the White House who want to get rid of Biden who leaked Hmm. the documents. All right. I'm not smart enough to know the answer, but I can tell you this. This Democratic blather that Republicans are going to destroy the big entitlements, they've tried this before. This is a long story. It will not work. The common sense public wants to see some spending restraint from the federal government. And if Biden stands in the way of that, uh, he's going to lose ground. He's going to lose a lot of ground. Don't forget, next time around 2024, two-thirds of the seats defended in the Senate are held by Democrats. You know, this time around, it was two-thirds held by Republicans. Not so easy. The next time around, they're held by Democrats. So they're going to be very vulnerable. And I don't think his own party is really behind them. But putting even that stuff aside, anybody with common sense, I think, knows you can't spend $6 trillion in new spending and borrowing every two years. You cannot do it. We went through a very bad inflation. Fortunately, the inflation rate is gradually coming down. So that's good. The Federal Reserve is tightening up. But the principal cause of the inflation, which has damaged the economy, was the overspending. And you can't keep doing that. And I think it lacks common sense. And I think this Democratic blarney, the big lie, as I call it, is just not going to work. Okay. Larry, I want to thank you so much. Sorry we lost you, but glad we got you back. If you want more, Larry. If you want more Thanks Larry Cudlow, yeah, no, <laughs> anytime, Larry, anytime. We'll catch you up anytime. But we got three hours of you tomorrow from 10 to 1. So thanks On so WABC. much. WABC 77 AM. Thanks, kids. Appreciate Thank it. Thank Take you. care. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. This is Cats at Night. I'm Judge Richard Weinberg. With me is my good friend, the esteemed Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. Uh, Rabbi Potasnik is the Executive Vice President of the New York Board of Rabbis, influential uh, 
theologian, public figure. He also has been uh, the religious advisor for the uh, New York Fire Department. So today, Rabbi, we have a very important day. It's the Holocaust Remembrance Day. Now, why is that important? Why should people care about this? First, let me say thank you to you, Judge, not only for today, but for the years of a, a close relationship. I've uh, known you, respect you for all that you do, and you're a proud Jew. And I think Holocaust Remembrance Day t- today uh, says to all of us that we have a responsibility. It's not enough to remember. Uh, you have a responsibility to see to it that hatred doesn't rear its ugly head. Unfortunately, uh, we're a little bit late because who would have thought that 78 years after the Holocaust, we'd be talking about anti-Semitism. We'd be talking about all forms of racism and anti-Asian attacks. Hatred is still there. Uh, It 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 permeates too many hearts. So uh, we can't be silent. The good news is, Judge, that in New York, for example, we have outstanding relationships with people of all different faiths. I sit here with a reverend. Cardinal is close to us. Whenever there's an attack, I know there'll be an immediate response from the interfaith community. So silence is not going to happen again. The the problem is that too many young people uh, are missing in terms of knowing what the Holocaust was. Uh, We need Holocaust education. We need a moral education. Uh, So we have a real responsibility to those uh, who are no longer with us. Well, my problem has always been that as we get older and our memories are gone and our place in this life is gone, the younger generation, as you correctly point out, have not been educated. People don't think it's important. They say it's a historical footnote. And as you correctly point out, it's much more than a historical footnote because bias, prejudice, hatred lives with us every day and it has to be a fight that's fought every day to prevent this because it has to do with the dehumanizing of our fellow human beings. And when you dehumanize our fellow human beings, what you're fundamentally doing is saying they're expendable. They can be persecuted. They can be prosecuted. They can be extinguished. I walk into the studio to be with you today and I see the news. Uh, Five people killed in a synagogue attack in Jerusalem. Uh, You pick up the paper and you read of someone who is visibly Jewish, you know, usually in, in the Orthodox community, who's attacked because... He is a Jew, Uh, not for anything that anyone did, but simply because of who they are. So here we are once again uh, talking about a hatred for which there's no vaccine, unfortunately. But we we have to get that Holocaust education into the public schools. We often have to counter the hatred on the Internet because young people today uh, can, you know, read all kinds of stories without fact-finding, that uh, say the most horrific things about people, uh, and they believe they're true. And the narrative that uh, the Holocaust is a, is a gimmick, it's a fiction, it's just made to advantage of, uh, of a particular group of people for a political advantage, a political gain, and yet that has currency. And how do you rebut that? But, but by real education. Real education. Because if you look back at the Holocaust... Educated people built those death camps. Educated people passed the Nuremberg Laws. So education makes you smart, but not necessarily moral. And I think a moral education has to be concomitant with the Holocaust education. Well, what I always thought was very significant, and I'll just quote a bit of it. Pastor Niemheimer was a Protestant theologian, and one of the most famous quotes, and this is a version of it, I 
I can't vouch for its absolute accuracy the way uh, the pastor wrote it, but this is what he said. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unions, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Now, the importance of that is is that we are all Jews, we're all Christians, we're all Muslims, we're all trade unionists, we're all people created by the Almighty, and we all have our common humanity. When we get marginalized, and it says, okay to victimize this group, and it goes on and on, the Asians are victim of this today, uh, Jews historically probably the longest living hatred, isn't it? Yeah. The, canary, the canary and the coal mines. You know, right. the first they start with the Jews and they go after everybody else. Look, Elie Wiesel said, one of the great tragedies of the Holocaust was you could get away with it. We have to make sure they don't get away with it. And that's right. And that's why this, the slogan of never again means so much. With a, with a period after it, not with, an ex, not with a question mark. Exactly right. Because we have to fight this fight every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember my mother-in-law and father-in-law came from Europe. My mother-in-law was Hungarian. Uh, she wound up in two of the, the concentration camps. She lost all of her family except for a, a brother and a sister, the parents, all the other brothers and sisters uh, were exterminated. Uh, she always had the numbers on her, her arm. And my father-in-law was from Germany. He lost his family except for his mother. He fought in the resistance, actually. Mm-hmm. He used to uh, paratroop in to Belgium and France because he was fluent in Flemish and in French and uh, German, of course. He worked behind the lines. And... Uh, he plotted and schemed with British intelligence and the British military to try to have an underground railroad to get all kinds of victims of, of Nazi persecution uh, protected and saved. And one of the interesting things, a historical footnote, but it still has resonance to me, it was Pastor Niemeyer, started off as a pro-Nazi yeah, national yeah. socialist. Yeah. And as the world evolved and saw what was going on, he fought back. He ultimately fought in the resistance and worked in the resistance. And for his trouble and his moral courage, to use your, your term of art, his moral courage and his understanding of universe, universality of, of humankind, he was paid back by the Nazis by being executed. That's why his name and so many others, righteous Gentiles, we call them at Yad Vashem. When you go to Israel, you go to Yad Vashem, and you'll see a listing of all of those who sacrificed their lives to save Jews they have to be remembered to, especially on this day of International Holocaust Remembrance Day. I'm a child of survivors. My parents lost five children. They had other spouses then. They were killed. Uh, so I always grew up looking at five pictures of kids and realized I have to do something to remember them in a meaningful way. Well, Rabbi, I want to thank you for being on Cats at Night. This is very, very important. As you and I have tried to point out to the listeners of Cats at Night, on our show, on every night, we try to fight, as John says, for truth, justice, in the American way. There's no greater truth that when you discriminate against one group of people, you discriminate against all your fellow human beings. Hatred has to be rid out of our consciousness. We have to have, as I say, real education. By that I mean you have to know the historical facts, and you have to have the moral component, as yeah. you correctly pointed out. So once again, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, the Executive Vice President of the New York Board of Rabbis, and my rabbi and my good friend, I thank That's you very much. my greatest achievement. Thank you so much. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. This is...
This is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Well, today is another poignant marker. It's actually, I don't know if you realize this, guys, but it's 50 years to the day uh, when the Vietnam War formally ended with the signing of the Paris Peace Accords. And with us on the line, we have Colonel Jack Jacobs, who uh, in the, is a retired colonel in the, in the U.S. Army and a Medal of Honor recipient for his actions during the Vietnam War. Welcome to the show, Colonel. Well, thank you. Good to be on the program. So it's 50 years. It's really hard to believe. I mean, I was, I was very little when this was going on. Um, how do you think, in retrospect, history will look upon the Vietnam War, now that we have some more perspective? Well, uh, academically, of course, and from a military perspective, it's not going to look very good at all. We uh, didn't make a decision on exactly what we wanted to accomplish. Never did, actually, except in the vaguest of terms. Mm. Um, we incrementalized our participation there, sending a few troops initially, and then when that didn't work, sent more. When I got to Vietnam in 1967, there were a half a million Americans in uniform there. And then ultimately... Uh, deciding that we really didn't know how to fight an unconventional war and we used conventional tactics mm. in order to accomplish it. And not surprisingly, after 10 years, we gave up. So it's, I think we learned a great deal during the war about how to wage war, how to deal with unconventional conflicts. But it was, it was, uh, it was not a sterling use of the military instrument of power. Colonel, it's, uh, this is a Ed Cox. You were there during Tet, is that right, the Tet Offensive? Yeah, I was. And yep. that, that, the media played that up as if it was a loss, and that was sort of a break point uh, with the media. It had an impact on the public. But actually, it was a victory, was it not, for American yeah, forces in the Vietnamese? It's a tremendous irony, a tremendous irony. The, it, was, it was a big mistake by General Jap, uh, who ran the uh, North Vietnamese Army, decided that what he would do would he would do a large conventional assault and uh, and then overrun the South Vietnamese and the Americans because they w would have been caught by surprise well everybody was caught by surprise except that it was a complete tactical disaster for the North Vietnamese uh, they got turned back absolutely every, everywhere a large number of North Vietnamese soldiers in Viet Cong were killed. And from the standpoint, from the American military standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, it was an absolute disaster for the communists, except that the American media had already tired of the war in Vietnam mm. and our inability to make a great deal of progress immediately seized on the, the, the North Vietnamese just their capability to launch the attack uh, as as a disaster for the Americans, when in actual fact it was ac absolutely the re reverse. And from that time on, with Walter Cronkite saying that we've lost the war and all the rest of that, it was a downhill slide. So there are two ways to look at this. From a military standpoint, the war from our and from our standpoint, the war was not conducted in a way which would have had a high degree of success, high chance of success. From a political standpoint, at the end of the day, that's what killed our participation in the war. And then 
we have a lot of blood on our hands. After we left in 73, uh, two years later, the North Vietnamese overran all of South Vietnam. And uh, a lot of South Vietnamese who didn't manage to escape wound up dying in, in camps. So it was, uh, you're absolutely right. The, the media seized on just the capability of the, of the North Vietnamese to launch the attack as the death knell of our uh, attempt to stabilize South Vietnam. Yeah, and the result was the re-education camps and the boat people, mm. and uh, these were the best of the South Vietnamese who were just trying to uh, 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 to get out, the boat people in, 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 in particular. Colonel, it's uh, Judge Richard Weinberg, sir. I want to ask you, can you say that there were lessons learned from the Vietnam experience? Yeah, I, uh, from a military standpoint, yes. I don't know about politics. That's a completely different exercise. I'm not convinced that politicians ever learn anything. But all that aside, um, from a military standpoint, we we learn to be able to distinguish between the use of the military instrument of power in an unconventional way and using it in a conventional way and the ways in which we can integrate the two in order to, to achieve success. But we also understood that we had to be able to evaluate where the the use of the military instrument these instruments would work and we didn't know that before um we learned we learned it unfortunately on the backs of more than 58,000 Americans killed uh, but but we did learn the lessons we just have to hope that we don't forget them Colonel Jack Jacobs, I want to thank you for your insights, 50 years gone, and I also want to thank you on behalf of the panel here. Thank you for your service. Well, my great pleasure. My honor to be in uniform, and thanks for having me on the program. Thank you. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to Cats at Night. Uh, you got the whole crew here, Judge Weinberg, we have Ed Cox, we have David Patterson, I'm Laura Curran, and on the line, we've got Melissa DeRosa. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So the big question today for you, we've got a lot of questions, so we want to fit a lot in. Um, it's budget season is starting, the governor has done her state of the state. What are you, what are you hearing from your sources in Albany about the budget? What's going to be in it? Is it going to be on time? What's the gossip? You know, I think that the biggest question right now regarding the budget and sort of the entire legislative session is, given the, you know, sort of humiliating defeat that Hochul just suffered, Governor Hochul just suffered on her Court of Appeals judge pick, what does this mean in terms of a ripple effect for everything else? Mm. And the legislature is really sort of feeling its oats and they're asserting themselves. And, you know, they had, you know, been through 11 years of a governor who was very strong and who very much, you know, dictated sort of the course of what was going to go on in Albany. And I think that they see an opportunity to reset that power dynamic. And so, you know, the budget's going to come out next week. We'll see what it's look like, what will look like, you know, the longtime budget director who was actually a Republican, really brilliant, strong, smart guy, Rob Mahika, left mm-hmm. last month. And so this is going to be a new team doing her budget. And so, you know, we'll see. She says there's not going to be new taxes. I think that's good news for everyone who feels overtaxed. We'll see what policy she tries to put in or leave out. Um, but, you know, I, I really do think that the, the question is going to be how does the legislature, this power dynamic between the legislature and the governor, 
play out. And traditionally, as Governor Patterson will tell you firsthand, you know, the governor has the upper hand in the budget and she's going to try to use it to, you know, sort of reset the table and the balance of power. So while all this is going on about the budget and the start of that, is she just going to let the LaSalle issue, whether she goes uh, uh, forces or tries to force it through litigation to go to the floor for a vote? Do you think that's still open? She hasn't made a decision on that. You know, Chairman, it's it's really a bizarre situation where, you know, the it is sitting there wide open and she's, you know, not, you know, really tipping her hand one way or another. But I think everyone else has kind of moved on. And so it's like the press assumes it's dead. The legislature has claimed victory. And whether or not a, a floor vote becomes an eventuality, it's it's dead. I mean, I said it on this show before it was ever reported in the press. They didn't have the vote long ago. Right. The com- the conference coalesced around the leaders, and it, it was over. And so, you know, I think the longer she sort of holds on to this without taking a definitive position, the weaker she appears. And if I had been advising her, and if you were going to decide to sue, which I think for a whole host of reasons would have been an important thing to do to preserve the power of the executive and not create new precedent in so, what it means to have the Senate sort of, you know, contemplate the judge. I would have had that lawsuit ready to go the minute they voted it down and, and taken the position. We know we're going to lose on the floor, but it's important to preserve the power. Melissa, of the judge. So, it's Richard Weinberg. That's that's exactly right. That lawsuit should have been drafted. It should have been filed as soon as they voted down in that committee, refused to send it to the floor. So, Melissa, no, that's it's, right. it, sorry, go ahead. Oh, it's David Patterson. Your insights on that whole process all through it were so spot on. I want to ask you, in retrospect, the day that the legislature put out this list of people, this is before she even makes her selection and says, if any of these people on the list are selected, they're not going to approve it. What do you think? How do you think it would have played out if the governor just got up and said, listen, uh, the legislature didn't have a right to be picking and choosing who should be on the on the court. That's not their role constitutionally. And until they withdraw that list and I get a clear image from them that they will vote on the merit of the candidate, I'm not even appointing a, a mm. chief judge. You know, that would have been an interesting way to go. I think that I think it, it was important to to at that moment sort of say, I'm not playing by your rules. The, right. the Constitution gives the authority to the governor. It's supposed to be a merit based selection process. And this is making a mockery of that. But at the same time, I would say that letter that was put out was only signed by 20 members, 20 of the 42 Democrats. And so if I if I were still secretary to the governor, what I would have done and I would have used my other senior staffers and the governor himself would have done. I'm sure, Governor, when you were there, you would have done. It's like I would have gotten on the phone and started working individual members and tried to isolate the fringe. And so when you made the choice you wanted to make, you knew you had the vote. And that's where I think that fundamentally this shows just a, a real. Yeah, there's no evidence that, that they really you're absolutely right. There's no evidence that they really even tried to protect themselves. No. And, you know, if, if you're going to make that choice and say, I think LaSalle's the right person for the job. And by the way, I thought he was the right person for the job. Me too. And he was someone that, that we had selected. You know, we made him in his current position where he is. And I think he's an incredible jurist. I think that if you were going to do that and you knew walking into it, you were going to face that opposition from the 20 or so members on the far left. You had to make sure your ducks were lined up in a row. And the person I really feel badly for is Justice LaSalle, who sort of got in bed with her and then was hung out to dry and has since had his record distorted and 
you know, sort of his positions completely destroyed and he and his family had to suffer through what we have all gone through at various points in politics where, you know, the press really puts you through the ringer. And and for what? It was like if she was going to pick him, knowing that that was the position of 20 members of the conference, it was her job to make sure from the moment she announced it that they had a plan. Melissa. Melissa, in the background, they're playing Superman. So <laughs> you know what that very means, Melissa. in your case. <laughs> Superwoman in that case. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thanks for your insights, as always. Great to talk to you guys. <laughs> it's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network.